Hello and welcome to the Language Revolution podcast. My name is Kate Hamilton. I'm a languages teacher and founder of Babel Babies. The aim of this podcast is to get people talking about talking. So without further ado, let's get started. So today I'm talking to Thomas Back, who is a reader in neuroscience at the Edinburgh University. And Thomas, this is our second conversation about languages. Yes. Uh, in our first, we talked a little bit about um, how the brain learns languages and whether there's a bilingual advantage. And we touched upon you know, why we have just organized the International Day of Multilingualism and how multilingual is in fact normal and it is part of human development as a species mm -hmm. and perfectly natural thing to do. So in this episode, I'd like to talk about um, how we do it, how do we learn languages, and is there, Thomas, a perfect age for learning languages? Well, there are, it depends, it okay. depends at least on two things. Firstly, it depends which aspect of language we are looking at, and secondly, it depends what are you learning languages for? Okay. So why do you want so to So your learn motivation languages? and also your... And also, yeah, so yeah. to say that's right. So let's start with first with the kind of aspects of language. What is probably something which is learned first is are the sounds. I mean, that's the first thing mm -hmm. that the children listen to mm -hmm. before they even understand what it means. So they will have an idea about the melody, about the sounds of the language, the intonation. long intonation, yeah. mm -hmm. and, you know, and the sound, the phonemes, mm -hmm. and so on, long before there will be much meaning there, mm -hmm. and also the emotional mm -hmm. value and so on. Well, and and babies, babies can hear during pregnancy, exactly, so exactly, from 20 weeks exactly. to pregnancy, uh, And I don't think that at that time they will really get, you know, all the semantic finesse <laughs> of our conversation. But they get the sounds, they get the melody, they get the prosody, and so on. Mm -hmm. And that is, of course, the first thing that they produce. I mean, they start producing mm -hmm. sounds long mm -hmm. before they start producing words, learn, yes. let alone sentences. So, in a way, in the acquisition of spoken language, so to say, the sounds come first. And that is the first thing which is learned, and that is something which, in a way, is indeed easier to learn younger mm. than older. There are some studies suggesting that, in a way, already at age, you know, as young as maybe, you know, 18 months or so, we start losing the ability to distinguish between kind of very, very fine phoneme distinctions. So there was some work done, for instance, in with Indian languages, which have kind of the opposition between dental and, and mm. retroflex, so da and da. Tar, tar, and so on, and that is something which, so to say, very small babies practically with any language can distinguish. But once they are not, if they are not exposed to this yes. distinction, it is okay. It's See, when you did that, it was very difficult for me to hear the difference that's, between. That's right. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm practicing it, and I, I still probably don't do it properly. Yeah, but it's yeah. you know you can see how if you are not a very young child, exactly. say um, yeah. I've heard that Chinese, yeah. you've got. The tones and That's right. you've got say five five tones. Isn't yeah, it? I mean, you're, you're, and, and there are four. That's just say, there's a four tones plus a neutral one. So yeah. in fact, yeah. five is so correct number. So one sound. that example, yes. um, my friend gave me was ma, and yeah, you can say it, it can mean horse or mother or marijuana. Or yeah, <laughs> and I mean that, that's, that, that's, that's, that's the classic. That's a classic advantage mm. uh, example. Mm. But in fact, I mean, there are quite a lot of tonal languages. So mm. I mean, Chinese is by far the best known, but I mean a lot of languages in Southeast Asia, let's mm. say Thai, Burmese, Vietnamese and so on, mm. I are 
tonal languages, also main languages in Africa, languages in Nigeria, Yoruba, main language of mm. uh, is tonal, I think, you know, other Igalo, Igbo probably be tonal as well. And then you have tonal languages in uh, North America, I, I think, mm. you know, Athabascan language, Navajo, and so on. So from this point of view, it's a phenomenon you find mm. across the whole world, although, as I say, Chinese by far the most famous example. And that is something which, in a way, is much easier to learn as a child mm -hmm. than as an adult. Because you can, you can finesse your, is it your hearing is just more tuned in that, that's yeah but also it's not just distinction between languages it's also within language mm. so let's say in most languages in the world except my own mother tongue uh, polish where there's remarkably little dialect difference mm within Poland, mm -hmm. to a degree that it's difficult for me to recognize where people come from when I meet them, so to say, without yes. knowing them. Mm -hmm. But in the in English, certainly, but also, let's say, in Spanish, in Italian, mm. in uh, German, and so on, you have big differences in dialect. Yes. Now, you will find that it's difficult to produce a different dialect from a certain age. Mm. So if you have someone who grows up in Scotland and moves mm -hmm. to London, let's say, with 20 or so, yes he or she will probably sound Scottish for the rest of their life, even if they stay in London, and vice versa, yes. if a Londoner moves up to Scotland, mm. will not necessarily sound like Scottish. So I would say this, and what I find absolutely fascinating is the idea that, I mean, let's say this, this distinction, so to say, it, until when you can get the sound, you can sound like a native, mm. is of course slightly different. Some pe For some people it finishes earlier, for some Mm -hmm. uh, later, some people are fantastic in doing it. I mean, there are some comedians. We are here mm -hmm. in Edinburgh. We have the famous Edinburgh mm -hmm. Fringe Festival. Mm -hmm. Some comedians are making their money from the ability to imitate yes. different accents and dialects. So they will make a whole story and joke of a mm -hmm. Liverpoolian, Mancunian, yeah. and Cockney Londoner, and so on, and and the Welshman going and so on. So you have this, but for most people, the so to say, I would say the pronunciation becomes mm. crystallized around adolescence, mm -hmm. 15, 16, 17, so, and so by on. the end of puberty, you might struggle to get a native accent. And the interesting, yeah. but also, I mean, native also within the language, not also between mm. languages. Mm. And interestingly, this is the period which in many cultures is the period of initiation rites. Mm. That's where, so to say, your tribal identity becomes yeah. fixed. So, whether if you look, let's say, at religious ceremonies, whether you look at the uh, at the you know uh, Catholic confirmation or mm. at bar mitzvah or mm. upanayanam and so on and so on, you have a lot of initiation ceremony. and very often it's not something you do with babies. Mm. It's not something you do with adults. It's something you do, so to say, around mm. more or less the time of adolescence. So mm -hmm. I would say that the way how we sound is above all mm -hmm. our tribal identity. That's really interesting. So I'm from the um, Worcestershire yeah. and as I was recording the intro to this podcast I said podcast because I thought I'd better sound proper but it's, um, it didn't feel natural at all and but I, I went to Oxford University so I was exposed yeah, to yeah. you know more received pronunciation there and I have never lost the ah sound yeah but I say bath and podcast as I don't actually ha I don't say bath 
I wouldn't, yeah. and that wouldn't yeah, occur yeah. to me say at all. But it's it's strange. I seem to have a bit of childhood yes. accent and a bit of you know adulthood yeah, yeah. accent. And then I lived in Scotland for eight years, and people sometimes say, "Oh, are you from Edinburgh?" Mm -hmm. well, no, I'm not from Edinburgh, but I have a little bit of a like a some an Edinburgh yeah. twang. And especially if I'm talking to somebody yeah, yeah. who is Scottish, mm -hmm. and it really comes back. And but you see, so I mean, that's a very is, is that a natural thing for humans to it's, it's take on the it's, accent? Well, it's, it's, it is natural for some people more mm. than for others, and. It's very interesting what you say because very often, I mean, this is not necessarily a conscious process. No, it just sort of happens. And my Welsh friend, Sarah, you know, yeah. when I'm talking to her, I become more and more Welsh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's right. So, so in a way, so, I mean, I mean it's, it's interesting. I remember once sitting on a train from London to uh, Edinburgh, mm. going via Newcastle, and opposite me was a guy who's kind of spent most of the time on phone, which was kind of pretty annoying. Mm. And since I couldn't really quite, you know, I didn't have, you know, my yeah. Oropax or so on yeah. uh, to put into my ears, I started, I was kind of listening, you know, not really voluntarily. Yes. But the interesting thing was, he kind of, he sounded almost like a Londoner leaving London. And the uh -huh. closer we came to Newcastle, the more it sounded Geordie. <laughs> <laughs> and by the time he came yeah. out of Newcastle, then it was really, so, so in a way, so some people, so you do have those things mm. and some people are much better mm. in so to say adjusting and very often is unconscious i have a spanish uh, friend here who uh, i mean is incredibly good in picking up not only english but scottish accent mm. and she said when I go to Glasgow, by the evening, I mm. come back and I speak with a Glaswegian accent. Yes. And I say, well, but how do you do it? And then mm. her answer was beautifully in Spanish, se me pega, which oh. means it sticks to me. Yes. So it's not yes. that I do it. It's something mm. that is happening. It just sort of comes in. Absolutely. Yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah. So, by the way, it's fascinating the way, for instance, in Hindi, how you say whether you speak the language or not is, is the language coming to you? Yes. So in a way, if you ask, I mean, do you, you know, apko hindi atihe? It means, is Hindi coming to you? Right. So it's not you going to language, the, the language channel. coming yeah. to you, so mm. to say. Oh, that's now, yeah. so from this point of view, but as, as you notice, I mean, there are big differences and some people retain mm. this ability to adjust mm much better than others. Mm. So what I said is, so that's why I don't think it's really meaningful mm. to speak about about critical period as if it were something like, you know, until your 17th birthday, so you no, are native no speaker and then limit. from tomorrow yeah. yes. you lose it. Yeah. it the, I mean, there is a lot of individual differences. Mm. I mean, let's say it would be very unusual for people, let's say, if they move, for instance, before 15, it would be very unusual for them not to acquire the mm. accent of the new place. And it's relatively unusual for people maybe after 20 or 25 mm. to acquire it. Mm -hmm. But in between, there is a kind of relatively long So you're not going to wake time. up one day and the exactly. critical window has Exa closed. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yes, and then panically you say, oh gosh, today the critical window has closed. Yeah, that's okay. certainly not the case. So, yeah. Yeah. So, in terms, so in terms of sounds, childhood yeah. is yeah. broadly going to be a, fr a fruitful time for yes. learning sounds. So Absolutely. you're going to sound more like a native if you've Absolutely. learned from early. Absolutely. But in terms of the other aspects of languages, is, well, is there I would a, say with, a gra with grammar, I mean, you know, grammar can be learned throughout your life. What happens is if you learn certain grammar, and by the way, grammar is also a, a, a you know, 
trial and error period. And yes. we know that also native speakers, I mean, native speaking children yes. make errors. I mean, oh. a classic example mm. is, let's say in English, they will produce, you know, they say wind instead of one. I mm. mean, I went well, the game, I, I, I eat it. it. Yeah. I went it to the park. Exactly. Or, you know, I yeah. eat it, you know, all my dinner and so mm. I think that's something which is well described mm. in English native speakers. Because we've got such irregular verbs. Yeah. And then we yes. also have regular endings. Exactly. Don't we? And exactly. I think children generalize that. They, they find a rule and they absolutely. think, oh, I'll apply that rule. Absolutely. To absolutely. Everything. Sometimes it's quite funny. Absolutely. Yeah. And that happens now. For, mm. for my daughter, it took a while to kind of realize that in Spanish, for instance, you don't say savo, but you say se. Mm. And then, interestingly, she then observe younger children and say, oh, she still thinks that you say savo and not se, because yes. she didn't learn it. So, so from this point of view, mm. we learn it. At, at some point, it becomes automatized. Mm. So I think the main difference in grammar probably is that if you are a kind of native speaker, you don't even think about mm. things kind of flow automatically. Yes. And that is something which is more difficult for non-native speakers. So yes. let's say, in an interview, particularly mm. if I'm tired or so, it can happen to me that sometimes I make grammatical errors which I know are incorrect. Yeah. A classical example would be past tense. I know, for instance, once you say, you know, did you, yes. you don't put the verb into past tense. So it's not mm -hmm. did you knew, but did you know. Ah, yes. But yeah. it can happen to me that I start saying, oh, did you knew, and the moment mm. when I say this, I already realize mm. that was an error. So the mm. point is, so it's not that I don't have, so to say, the knowledge mm. of it, but it's not automatized. So let's say mm. the form did doesn't automatically suppress yes. the past tense transformation. So, but uh, if you've learned from a much younger age, yes. you can just switch exactly. between the two grammars or three grammars absolutely. without showing any cracks. Absol absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But mm. here, interestingly, that is already different in a... So, for instance, that is an error that I realize I occasionally do, particularly mm. if I'm tired. Mm. But, for instance, I would never do it in a written language. Yes. Because then I have time, I look yes. at, of course, because I know it's mm. incorrect. So that's why for foreigners, so, so I would say there is really a kind of, there is a number of different, so first the critical periods are individual, are long, they are individually different, and then they are different for different things. Mm -hmm. So let's say in terms of this automaticity, it's also something that you usually learn maybe around puberty and so on. If you learn language after 20, it will be mm. difficult. But you can learn it to a degree that you will not do this errors, for instance, in a written language, because mm. there you have time, you work, so to say, offline. And that explains, for instance, why people, you know, as you will know, coming from a literature background, there are many people who write wonderful world-class literature in mm. languages mm -hmm. which are not their mother tongue. Yes. So one example which I particularly like is, of course, Joseph Conrad or Józef yes. Konrad Korzeniowski, because I went to the same school as him, <laughs> so I remember in our school aula to mm. see his portrait always yes. well, in, in Krakow. Some people don't even realize that Joseph Conrad is not English. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, it was his fifth or sixth language, depending yes. how you count. I mean, he grew in a Polish family, but, you know, first in the part which was Russian-speaking, where he had to learn Russian at school. Then he was in Krakow, where it was German-speaking, part of Austria, so mm. he had German at school. Then he was enrolled in, in, uh, on uh, French ships, where he spoke Spanish, uh, French. The question, I mean, maybe mm. uh, to what extent he spoke Ukrainian. So English was at least, well, his fifth mm. or sixth yes. language. Now, I would say his command of English is not it's bad. It's not bad. <laughs> so 
I mean, no, if that's if that's an ideal, you know, yeah. that's not. Yeah. But for instance, he spoke with a very strong accent, as we know yes. from reports, let's say, by Bertrand mm. Russell, who was mm. you know, one of his great admirers. Another good example would be Samuel Beckett, mm -hmm. who wrote some of his plays, including the famous Waiting for Godot, or Notre Dame yeah. Godot, yes. in French, which yes. was not his first language. So from this point of view, we have nice examples across the whole world mm -hmm. of literature of people who reach incredibly good level writing in what is not their native, their first language. Yes. It is even more pronounced when it comes, for instance, to understanding the language. Mm -hmm. So probably the most dramatic example here I can give is Mary Hobson, an English writer. Mary who, Hobson. Yeah, yes. who started uh, learning Russian with 56. Wrote no, oh, her. Yes, I, know, I know this story about Mary Hobson. So she had broken her foot or she was Exactly, she was, she was in a she hospital. Was laid out, wasn't she, in hospital? And then her daughter said, you know, brought her a copy of War and Peace and said, Mom, if you there's, don't read it now, <laughs> you will you will never do it. Now you have the time. Yes, the and she liked it so much yes. that she had this mad idea to say, "Well, I want to read it now in original." So she decided to learn Russian and because she, she felt like she was missing exactly, some of the, exactly. the nuances. And she the, didn't the have much, you know, uh, no exposure to Russian mm. at all. With seventy-five, she got, uh, or at the age of seventy-five, she got the her PhD uh, with a uh, thesis about Gribayedov. So she learned Russian in so her fifties and sixties. Exactly. She went. She did a PhD about Russian poetry wow. with seventy-five about Gribayedov, a nineteenth-century okay. Russian writer, and then with ninety she published a new translation of Yevgeny Onegin, the main work of wow. Russian when she was 90. literature. Is, 90. Is she still alive? I don't. And know yes, yeah, yeah, and yeah. and. For me, a kind of dramatic example. I mean, mm. she got, of course, all the kind of Russian literature prizes. Yes. So I would say her Russian. I mean, in order to translate the main works of Russian literature, her yes. Russian must be quite good. Yes. So you can learn grammar. Mm -hmm. I mean, she will be probably not as fast producing mm. correct sentences as some of them, but enough yes. to appreciate and render in English translation mm. some of the most beautiful works of Russian literature. That's it. And I, rem I remember reading that she found the process of learning Russian um, alphabet quite tiring mm -hmm. and that she slowed down in the evenings. She yes, said, exactly. She would take a rest in the evenings. But you know, maybe a child uh, would have energy absolutely. You know, for longer. Absolutely. Because I suppose yeah. if you're a, a young child, your job at that point is yes. to understand your, yes. your world and yes. you've rapidly got to yes. get into it. As an adult, perhaps, yes. are, um, ability to learn. Yes. Um, you know, is, we've not got such mm -hmm. stamina, perhaps. Yeah. But yeah. it doesn't mean that we can't. Absolutely. Do an incredibly good job. Yeah. So we've got we've talked uh, um, learning sounds is perhaps easier yeah. as a young person, but there's certainly no cut-off point. Mm -hmm. um, there's not a definite you know day when you yes. turn 17 it will end. And we've talked about the grammar that we can mm -hmm. learn that throughout life. So what um, other aspects of well, of course, language. vocabulary yeah. is something that we continue learning mm. throughout our lifetime. Yes. And in a way, we we cannot help but learn new words, mm. particularly in our modern world, because new things are coming up. I mean, technology is a good Because example. there are neologisms. Uh, I mean, technology, yes. yeah. you know, for instance, I mean, when I was growing up in Poland, there was not even things like answer phone, mm. let alone mm. mobile phones, let alone downloading, uploading computer That's files, it. let alone yeah. internet with Facebook and so on and so on. Mm. So languages have to create these new words yes. and we have to learn them. Now, a kind mm. of my favorite example 
example, is contactless payment. Okay. This is something which practically only appeared in the last two years or so. Mm. And you can notice in Edinburgh in Polish shops, depending whether, when people came over, mm. whether they know what is the correct new Polish word or not. Oh, okay. Because, you know, it is really something which only came up. So. It's not completely predictable. In Polish, you don't say bezkontaktowy, so without contact, which would be a translation of contact. You say zbliżeniowy, which means basically paying by proximity, by coming oh, close to. Okay. Uh, so those words are not predictable mm. and they develop. So from mm. this point of view, I think we learn vocabulary all our lives. Mm. And that explains, for instance, why very often if we study in a certain language, mm. we might find it difficult, for instance, to give a talk about it in our mother tongue. Right. So yes. for me, I would say it's much easier to speak about all professional things or do an interview like this one I mean, in English anyway, but mm. I would say even it's easier probably in Spanish and in German mm. than it's in Polish. Mm -hmm. I mean, I did interviews in Polish, yes. but I had to struggle quite a bit because it's not a vocabulary that I really have. I left mm. Poland with 17, mm -hmm. so most of my university time was already in Germany. Yes. Practically most of my professional time was in Britain. So from this point of view, mm. I don't really have a lot, or at least these items are not yeah, you're I've, he I've had um, that discussion with a Lithuanian friend of mine who said that she was, you know, going to determine to speak Lithuanian with her baby when yeah. he was born. But then she'd been in England for 20 years, yeah, and yeah. Uh, suddenly she, you know, she'd left Lithuania when she was um, 18. And yeah, yeah, she yeah. just didn't have the right words to yeah. say to him, you yeah. know, all the comforting sort of, all the nappies, all the pushchairs, and and so she just felt like she she had to suddenly learn a whole. Yeah new list of vocabulary in her own language. That is true, that is yeah. true. So yeah. I would say a kind of the... I mean, the, we do that anyway when we have the, a, exactly. a child because you don't I mean, know... The, the, you know, I mean, if you don't have a child, you yeah. don't have the vocabulary yeah. about, you know, it's nappy changing and so on anyway, and so on. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And by the way, the word for nappy will be different in the US and yes. in Britain. So in a way, so you have also That's differences. It. I think the... I don't know what the Americans say. Diaper. That, diaper, exactly. That's it. So, so, so vocabulary we learn throughout life. So yes. children obviously start off with a smaller yep. vocabulary. They have, you know, maybe 30, right. 50 words and... But it grows and grows. It's and a lifelong yes. process. Well, it is. And very often our mm. vocabulary will be best in a language, I mean, let's say will depend on the context mm. and will depend what we learn in it. Mm -hmm. So let's say for me, I would say my emotional and family vocabulary is mainly Polish and Spanish, mm -hmm. whereas my intellectual, professional vocabulary is mainly mm -hmm. German and English. Because that's where you studied exactly. medicine. Exactly. Great. So, um, Let's just think about the benefits of bilingualism for your brain's health, because I know this is a big mm -hmm. uh, topic of yours, having a healthy linguistic diet. Mm -hmm. And I quite like this idea that it's actually um, a choice that you can make for a healthy lifestyle, learning languages is mm -hmm. part of that. So how, how is it that speaking more than one language has um, advantages for your brain's health? Well, let me now link it to the very first question that you asked about the kind of critical periods and yeah. so on. And I said that it depends on aspect of language and we are kind of nicely going now mm. through the, the three, uh, aspects, we learn, so three aspects the of The sounds languages. and grammar and exactly. vocabulary. Yes. But if we see learning languages not just as something we do because we want to learn a language to communicate, but also something we want to do as a mental exercise, yes. then I would almost say the later we do in life, mm. the better. Okay. And here the point is, as you notice already from the first interview, I like to compare it, 
or a mental and linguistic experience to a physical one. Yes. You know, coming from medical background, for me, it's all mm. parts, so to say, of the same, uh, of the same phenomenon, same system. Now, if you want, let's say, to learn tennis because mm. you want to win Wimbledon, then mm. you'd rather do it very young. So if you're going to be a champion, tennis If you want to be a champion, start, then you start young. Start young also, yeah. if you want to learn piano in order to perform at Carnegie Hall, yes. then you'd rather learn it very fast as well. Yes. However, if you, for instance, want to play tennis because you want to keep fit, mm -hmm. then in fact it's more important what you do with 15, 16, what you do as a teenager. So, yeah, so, if you, if you're, yeah, so if your motivation for learning tennis is to win a uh, Grand Slam, you're not going to start when you're 50 mm -hmm. and then win a Grand Slam. But if you yes. want to be healthy yes. and be fitter, yeah. then it's best to be doing the tennis when you're 50. Exactly. exactly. It, I guess if you did tennis as a young person yeah. and then didn't do tennis for decades, you're not going to carry on the benefit of having no, done not, a lot of tennis early not, on. Not for a long time. So people yeah. who, let's say, if you are very active, sporty and whatever, have healthy lifestyle in your mm. teenage years and if then you, spend the following 50 years. Yes doing all the unhealthy things, yeah. then you will not end up as a very healthy No, it's no good being a fast runner when you were eight. Exactly, if you, if you exactly, exactly that. Not going to and, and you know, you, so, so from this point of view, I mean, if we see languages, and that's a perspective which is of course very important for me and my research, if we see languages not just as a means of communication, mm -hmm. but also as a mental exercise, yeah. then what we do later is more important than mm -hmm. what we do early. Mm -hmm. So from this point of view, I'm particularly interested, exactly in examples I had, like, you know, Mary Hobbs, I'm particularly interested in people learning languages later on. And by the way, coming back to another topic that we mentioned in the first mm. interview, where we spoke about linguistic exogamy and societies in which it's usual to marry someone speaking a different language, that means that it's not only usual for children to grow up with two different languages, it is expected from an adult to be able to learn a new language. Yes. And that is something, so I would say it is equally natural for us to learn languages as children as to learn languages as adults. There are different, so to say, advantages and disadvantages in both, mm -hmm. but we can do both. Yes, exactly. And we might bring different skills to Absolutely. the... To the process as Absolutely. well, as you're, you know, a baby is not going to sit with a dictionary, and an adult can use different skills for that. So, um, a really hot topic when we talk about, talk about Thomas yeah, Bach yeah. is dementia and yes. how uh, languages mm -hmm. are um, an important, maybe a, a tool or a, yeah, almost yeah. almost a, not a medicine, but like a yeah. a care mechanism. Yeah. How would you describe? Yeah, well, I I think in order probably to explain all this field, it might be good to start with introducing a very important influential concept that we have nowadays, and that is of cognitive reserve. Cognitive reserve. Now, the origin of this is going back again. It's a kind of nice bridge that we were speaking in the beginning about different methods and so on that mm -hmm. we have in neuroscience. Now, the development of neuroimaging neuroscience brought a lot of new insights, but it brought also some, I would say, unexpected of some people, at least surprising results. Mm. Namely, that there is no one-to-one -one complete overlap between what we see on the scans 
mm-hmm. what we see in real life. Okay. This is not only in terms of the brain. So in a nice example, or clear example, would be, for instance, the issue of, let's say, back pain and MRI of the spine. Mm. You can have people who have quite a pronounced disc prolapse yes. and are still functioning quite well, although you look at their scans and say, oh gosh, that looks really problematic. Yes. And you have some who will have much less on the scan, mm-hmm. but are in a wheelchair with chronic pain. Yes. So we cannot really predict, we cannot sort of say, 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 you know, one millimeter means so much pain and so on and so on. Yes. There must be other factors which modulate it. That's right. And the same we can find in the brain. Of course, people who have more atrophy, mm-hmm. so more loss of brain substance, are likely to perform worse on cognitive tests and maybe mm-hmm. in daily life. But again, it's not a one-to-one relationship. So the curve is not, yeah, you, know, you find the sometimes more brain damage you have, the exactly. more symptoms. You have, yeah, yeah. I, mean, it, I mean, you have a progression of symptoms which go yeah. together with atrophy. Mm. But you can see sometimes people who have quite a lot of atrophy and are still functioning. Mm remarkably well and others who are dysfunctioning mm-hmm. with less atrophy. Yes. So again, it's not that atrophy doesn't matter, it matters a lot, it explains what we would say a lot of variance, mm. but it's not the only factor. There must be other factors which modulate this relationship, mm-hmm. which also play a role. Yes. And in this context, uh, the concept of cognitive reserve emerged. So the idea is that if we have, so to say, well-connected brain, well-trained exercise brain, it might be able to cope Mm. with pathological processes better than one which is more ill-equipped. Okay, so so when you say a pathological process, what what do you mean? Atrophy, for instance, dementia, Mm. Alzheimer's disease and so on. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that, so to say, having a better cognitive reserve, Mm. be it through being multilingual or being through having a kind of cognitively demanding occupation or being active in some other Mm. ways, Mm. that means you will get the pathology, you will get the atrophy, you will get the cell loss, like Mm. patients who have, you know, other patients who have the disease, Mm. but your brain will be able to compensate it. So you won't show the effects of it. So the effects will Mm -hmm. come later. So it means, and that's a very, very important point, because there are a lot of misinterpretations, so to say. People saying, oh, well, if you are bilingual, you know, multilingual, you don't get Alzheimer's disease. I mean, I wish that were the case. Uh, It's not. Uh, What you can see is a delay. So that means you can still get the pathology, Mm -hmm. but the pathology will be compensated will show its effect later okay so you're still going to <coughs> you're still prone to having a stroke if well i mean stroke example. is a brilliant example uh, because i mean stroke in, in in a way it's even easier because in stroke we have the event which we usually know exactly when it is most patients will get a scan so you see exactly what's happening and then hopefully you start recovering. And what we found is there was no difference whatsoever in the age of stroke between people who spoke more one language or another language. So being multilingual doesn't doesn't stop you you at all. Unfortunately, there are many other things maybe you can do, healthy diet or movement and exercise, absolutely. So in a way, the age, I mean, in the study, again, done with with my colleague Suvarna Aladi in Hyderabad in India, we found exactly, it was kind of less than half a year difference Mm. between both groups. Mm -hmm. However, Mm. once you get a stroke, people who spoke more than one language recovered better. 
a better recovery rate. So that means yeah. it's not about being generally healthier or you know having a better diet, mm. having generally healthy lifestyle and so on. That didn't influence the age of stroke at all. Yeah. But what Benning was influenced was the recovery. So there mm -hmm. was a much better recovery, twice as much. Twice. So in fact, well. I mean, normal cognition after stroke was noted in more than 40% Mm -hmm. of bilinguals and multilinguals and less than 20% of monolinguals. Wow, that's double. Yes. Okay. Yes. So, if so you it speak, was a massive difference. That's a massive difference. That's really important. So, if, so if, if I just understand this right, so if you speak more than one language, you actually double your chances of, 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 of recovery. Of, of full yeah. recovery from or, or at least mm. it will be faster. I mean, the point yes. is, I mean, we didn't mm. really, I mean, again, we looked roughly one year later. Yeah. If we maybe looked for you know five or ten years, yeah. you will find mm. a picture probably exactly opposite to the one I said with Alzheimer's. Mm. So you will find probably that people who spoke one language did recover, but much slower yes. than those who spoke more. Okay, than one. that's absolutely amazing. So, should the um, yeah should the NHS be prescribing languages for? Well, I mean, is it is it you know better, way, better than drugs? I, mean, I would say, I would say yeah. well, I mean, uh, it it seems to work better than you know any drugs that we have available. Mm. It's certainly much cheaper. Yes. It might have many other advantages. I mean, we are not mm. speaking. I mean, we are speaking only about the cognitive advantage. But for instance, one of the great advantages of language courses is that it's also a way of getting people into social interaction. Well, yes, exactly, because another problem of old age is loneliness. Exactly, isn't it? absolutely. So, so if you, but say, say you um, signed up for an uh, Italian class yes. or something, um, is it better to do every Tuesday over a number of years, or is it better to go for a week-long intensive Italian course in Italy? Um, and if you do the like, yeah. week-long intensive, is, is that, well, that's is that a, useful? That, or I mean, that's a, well, that's yeah. a very good question, and th mm. the answer is we don't really have that much evidence. Mm. It's an area which I find particularly interesting because it's exactly an area where, coming from medicine, I see or I think in terms of the dose and treatment period. Mm -hmm. okay. It's a very different approach to, let's say, people coming from more linguistic tradition who mm. see languages more as a kind of dichotomous. You have the competence or you don't have the competence. Okay, you can do it or you can't. You, exactly. So yeah. in a way they dichotomize. Now for me, language is an activity, mm -hmm. let's say, like swimming. Yes. And from this point of view, if I want to find out whether swimming is healthy, I'm not interested whether people can swim or how beautiful you know, their crown movements are, yes. but I look, you know, for how often they swim, for how much mm. time, and so on and so mm -hmm. on. So I see language as practical activity. Okay. Like Sudoku? Like is anything that, else. Yeah. The difference between Sudoku and language is that Sudoku is relatively so to say, circumscribed in mm. what you do, mm -hmm. and generally many of those type also, you know, crosswords and so on methods, there is very little generalization. So that means you are getting better in what you are doing, but mm. it doesn't really change very much your other functions. It doesn't have a sort of a knock-on exactly. benefit. Effect. And I think yeah. this is probably because it's very, very circumscribed. Now, language learning is for me something which affects enormous number of different things. I mean, mm. it, you know, you have 
the perception we spoke about sounds and so on we have mm. this perception production of sounds yes we have different rules of grammar which can be sometimes you know almost mm. like mathematical or algorithms we have different semantics different mm. meaning of words shades of meaning we have different social rules which kind of uh, words or style and so on you use with which person so exactly yeah. so from this point of view I would say I mean Sudoku or as a crossword is for me like going to a gym and spending all your time in one machine mm -hmm. probably you know if you train biceps all the time your biceps will get stronger but you will not necessarily become a very fit person yeah. going to a language course is like going through a kind of parkour of you know 10 or 15 machines which mm -hmm. really Affect so it gives your whole brain Absolute, a workout. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, mm. I would not say that language is completely unique. What is probably closest to that, I would say, is music. Yes. Because in case of music, you also have different levels. Mm -hmm. You have also the perception and production of sounds. Yes. You have also rules, which can be very mathematical, mm. but you have all the emotional aspects mm. as well. And then, if you perform music with other people, mm -hmm. let's say so in an orchestra, so. mm. in choir and so on, you have the social aspect mm. as well. So that's why, in a way, I would expect language and music to have quite similar effects mm -hmm. because in both cases they offer really a very rounded so to mm -hmm. say involvement of a lot of different domain brain yeah. domains so it's a really it's a re basically a really great workout for your brain and you can delay yes. dementia up to four years, is it? Or well, I mean, the, the, there are several studies showing four years. In illiterate, it was even six years. In illiterate, so, right. Yeah, okay. so that was a b bigger difference than literate people. Mm. So I think it's a, a I mean, as I say, much more than mm. any of the drugs that we yeah. have available. Okay, and you double your chances of recovering from yes. a stroke yes. with your full brain yes. function. So yes. it's just absolutely wonderful, isn't it? Um, and so if you, okay, so is that just if you've learned languages your whole life. I mean, if you're sort of 65 now, yes, you can, you can start learning um, Italian. So my parents, they learned Italian in their mm -hmm. 60s into the early 70s, and they're um, really good at it now. Is, um, is it more challenging to them? Is it the fact that it's challenging that well, of I mean, they, they, found yeah. it, they found it hard, it's tiring, they get very of tired talking about it. Of course it's more challenging. Is, I mean, is that actually part of the, it's, yeah, but I mean, but the, part of the benefit? But that, that's a very, very good point. I think mm. you're absolutely right, spot on. Mm. Now, we have sometimes the idea that, you know, all the learning should be easy mm. and without effort and so on and so on. But in fact, effort might be the part of the deal. Yes. So, of course, if you learn things later, and it's not only with languages, if I want now to learn to play piano, yes. I will find it much more difficult than my six-year-old daughter. Yeah. If I want now to learn tennis, it will be the same, and mm. so on. So, I would say any activity learned later mm -hmm. will probably need, so to say, more effort. But that's exactly the reason why we need. Exactly. It. So I, you know, running is harder if you are absolutely you know, not used to it. But absolutely, you, absolutely. But that's, you're going that's to it. get a lot but better at it. That's exactly, and that's and exactly what you need. Yeah. Mm. I think what happens very often in our lives is that the older we get, the more we get into routines. That's it. So it's, it's very common, isn't it, that if you um, have retired, that you, you know people 
you know, can die within a few years of well, I mean, you have, I mean, a lot, you, a lot is, of this might that? be also psychological. Many yeah. people, for instance, the moment they retire, they feel that they lost, to say, the right to live, that mm. they are now burden on society and so on, not contributing mm. and so on. So it can affect the the self esteem, mm. the the feeling of worth, of value, and so on, so on. So there's a very, very complex problem involving a lot of things. But of course, another is that in a way, if you work, a lot of activities are kind of Mm. done for you and also a lot of social life. I mean, whether you like your work colleagues or not, at least you are you go really going and, and you, know, you are seeing yeah. them and so yeah. on and so on. Now, once you stop at home, then that mm. is all gone. Yeah. In former times, for instance, going shopping was at least a mm. social interaction. Now, as more and more cases are being now replaced by mm. automatic ones. I mean, even then, this sort of say disappears. So yes, in a you way, just get your shopping delivered and exactly, yes. or you get yeah. delivered. Mm. So from this point of view, I would say the necessity of social interactions going down, mm -hmm. but pr so the necessity in order to survive, yeah. but probably not our desire and our need yeah. and so to say our psychological mm. necessity. So in a way, we are here confronted with something very similar as we spoke in the first mm. uh, in the first episode about the kind of compensation mm -hmm. i would say our natural life social life was a lot of physical exercise yes a lot of mental exercise with multilingualism playing a prominent role mm -hmm. and of course a lot of social interaction yes you go yeah. hunting together and yes, so yes you so live on. in the tribe so what yeah our civilization is doing is to make many of those things superfluous or yes. not necessary. Yes, or automate the processes. Exactly. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that we don't need them. Yeah. It just means that we have, so to say, now to compensate. Yes. So, since we don't have our hunting society, we then have to go to a social club or mm. have social media and mm -hmm. so on and so on. Mm -hmm. So we have to consciously replace things yes that have been so yeah just because it can before. be automated exactly so just because you can type into google yeah. how to say hello in yeah, swedish yeah, yeah, yeah. doesn't mean that you shouldn't make the effort to learn how to say hello in uh, spanish or swedish if you're going to that country or it, it just just because the you know, the, just because the easy way is there and mm -hmm. you can all do your shopping, yeah. it doesn't mean that, you know, physically but, you know, and mentally easy, we don't need to... You know, easy to is not always in. the best way. So mm. one of the metaphors I was using in, in a letter to Guardian last year was, in fact, uh, comparing learning languages to uh, hill walking, to mm -hmm. climbing a mountain. And I said there are different ways how you can climb a mountain. You can go into a cable car mm. and then, you know, you arrive on the top and then you can take your selfie and go back. Mm. Or you can do a trip, you plan your trip, you go through the landscape and so on. Much longer, much more effortful. Mm. But I would say firstly you get physical exercise that mm. you don't get just by using a cable car. Yeah. But you also learn many other skills. You learn navigational skills, you get a completely different feeling of the landscape. So in a way, I would say with languages like this as well, you can kind mm. of you know, get your Google translation and so on, which mm. would be probably the kind of the equivalent of taking a cable car, but that means that you are depriving yourself yeah. of all the important experiences that you yes. can have by 
taking the way out. Exactly, yourself. the benefit of going up the hill is, exactly. is deprived of half of the exactly half of the things. Exactly. So, oh, that's that's brilliant, isn't it? Fascinating. Thank you. Um, I've got one more question. So, talking about people who've um, perhaps got Alzheimer's already, okay, yeah. would you recommend that we can to learn languages? Say, you know, my um, older relatives. Yeah. Can I introduce them to languages? I would, um, yeah, I would say definitely. I mean, that's one of the kind of ethics of uh, Lingo Flamingo. They try to offer it even to patients with dementia. So mm. far, we don't really have good data. We don't know mm. whether this can in any way help or not. Mm. There are reasons which are kind of relatively complicated. Like sometimes if you delay onset of disease, once you get a disease, you can even have a faster sort of deterioration because you have right. kind of postponed mm -hmm. right. this moment. Mm -hmm. So at the moment, we don't really have cognitive data that would show that this really helps cognitively. However, it could be the case, it certainly doesn't cause any harm mm. and we know from our pilot studies that as I say no one got really confused mm. what we can tell already now is that there are definitely psychological benefits so yes. if you have for instance people with let's say early diagnosis of dementia one of the first things that happens is very often they move into a feeling of resignation of yes. nihilism oh gosh from now on yeah. i can't learn anything i can't do, can't do anything and so on so on so it's a sort of a self-perpetuating thing exactly, oh, oh silly me exactly exactly that and, so in yeah. addition mm. to the pathological process of you know brain atrophy and so on that they already have they will have so to say an additional inactivity mm. caused by the they will actually be self-limiting exactly yeah mm. now if we can counteract it by giving them something that they see they can still do, it can be a very empowering effect. And in fact, in our studies, it was amazing how people in our focus groups at the end said, I'm so proud of myself, I will tell it to my grandchildren, oh, I wonderful. could learn some Italian, and so on and mm. so on. And as I say, and the second point mm. is also it brings them people together mm. with a social benefit. So I would say from this point of view, it is something which I mean, I have never seen any side effects. So mm. in a way, you know, if you work with drugs, mm. you expect always that whatever works will have some side effects. I would say side effects of learning language are minimal. So we know Perhaps it's a very a safe method. a certain wanderlust. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it might encourage you to want to travel. That, that's, that's right, which, you know, which, which can ruin you. But I mean, in a way, it's probably not a bad yeah. thing. So yeah. in fact... It's, it's better yeah. than many sort of other side effects like Absolutely. hair loss or... Absolutely. <laughs> I would say proper, probably yes. So from this point of view, I think I'm moving now, I mean, as much as I'm interested in the cognitive aspects, we should not really worship mm. the cognitive or frontal executive functions and so yes. on as the only thing that matters. You can't separate the brain from the whole being. I mean, in a yeah. way, if you've been working in dementia, I've been working with dementia patients for several decades, there is no alternative to taking what we call biopsychosocial model. Mm -hmm. So of course biology is important because in a way these are the processes that cause the diseases. They might hopefully be influenced by some drugs in future and mm -hmm. so on and so on. So in a way you can't really do dementia with a biology. Mm -hmm. You can't do dementia also without the psychology of the person mm -hmm. because people might react in a very different way yes. to the same things. Yes. And the social, you can't do it really without realizing the social context. Here we have situations, for instance, I was speaking many times about India where I did quite mm. a lot of work and, and 
I am really fortunate to have you know, wonderful collaborations with Indian colleagues. And one of the things they would say, I mean, for instance, many families in India, the older people will be living with the family. Yes. Now, even if they are forgetful, let's say in the West, if they are living alone and they cannot pay the bills, that's the end. Yes. If you leave, so to say, with your family in India, you don't pay the bills because of your family. So in mm. a way, the way how society mm. copes with that mm -hmm. can be very different. Yes. It's not only I don't want to idealize, so to say, the, the, those societies, because for instance, the uh, tensions caused by behavioral changes can be in fact bigger. So if yeah. you live together, if you are, mm. so to say, if you live alone and you behave a little bit odd, mm. people will maybe smile and laugh about it, but you yeah. know, it doesn't matter. If you live mm. very close together with your family, odd behavior mm. might be much more source yes. of tension. So what I mean is, not that there is some kind of ideal solution and so on, but that we cannot really understand dimension without mm. taking into account the whole, the whole say, yeah. all the way from biology mm -hmm. through individual psychological development of a person to the social context and the mm. society in which it happens. Great, and, and what we're saying is that languages can be a really helpful part of that Absolutely. Uh, treatment. Absolutely. And, um, and just to summarise this episode, we can start learning languages, well we start learning before birth, don't we? We're, yep. you know, in utero, and we can continue learning very successfully throughout the whole life um, lifespan and there's no um, there's no reason not to start straight away, whatever age we are. Absolutely. I would yeah. say that that is true, what you said, of course, mm -hmm. is true for any type of learning. Yes. I mean, it's very important to realise, and that is now a bigger and bigger topic, of course, as more and more people are getting mm -hmm. older. Mm -hmm. We have, we spent, percentually, longer and longer part of our life in retirement, because retirement yes. hasn't changed, but yes. life expectancy is close. So in a way, well, it's, I it's think... It's doubled in 150 years. Yep. So, yeah. so the importance of lifelong learning mm. is absolutely crucial. And mm. one kind of anecdote, which for me kind of summarizes it, is I once took my daughter, who was on holiday that day, into a Swahili class I was doing, and she was kind of behaving very well, I mean, mm. didn't really disturb. And then, you know, after we finished, and we had people, you know, from, let's say, 20s to 70s in the age-wise in the class, yeah. we were going out and she said, oh, that was interesting, Daddy, so I see grown-ups learn too. Oh, that's nice. And I yeah. loved it, yeah. because I think, in a way, that's a mm. kind of such a lovely it's model. It's such a good model, exactly. Grown-ups learn too. Grown-ups learn too. And I think mm. it makes, by the way, learning for children more attractive, mm. because they realize it's not something mm. I have to do because I'm a child, and once I am grow up, I can throw it away. Yes. But mm. I would say this should be a life motto for all of us, mm -hmm. not only for languages, but for everything else. Yeah. Thank you very much, Thomas. And we will speak again um, in our next episode. Thanks.